Welcome to the sermon podcast of Northridge Presbyterian Church in Dallas, Texas. I'm Betsy Sweetenberg, the pastor here, and I hope that in this podcast you see what we seek to do week after week, approaching the stories of our faith with a holy curiosity, not shutting the book because the stories are hard or there are truths we'd rather ignore. Instead, approaching scripture, trusting that God will meet us there, full of grace and truth, teaching us something new about how we are to live in this world God so loves. Ever here, O oh God. Pour out your spirit on these words that we will hear and instill in us a holy curiosity so that we may approach your word with questions instead of answers, with wonder instead of fear. In your son's name we pray. Amen. This summer we're working our way through different types of literature in the Bible, and today we turn to wisdom literature. Now there are a lot of options when it comes to wisdom literature, and it was so hard to choose just one scripture for this morning that I thought got at the heart of the wisdom tradition. The book of Job is most commonly associated with wisdom literature in the Bible, but Proverbs and Psalms also get to the heart of the wisdom tradition in Scripture. But this morning we're going to turn to Ecclesiastes. It's a Scripture that you probably know. It's most commonly heard at funerals. When it does appear in readings for the church year, It's only and always on New Year's Day, so there's a good chance that you've never actually heard this scripture in a worship service. I have read this scripture many a times at a funeral service at the request of a grieving family, but I have never preached on it, so we may be in this together, exploring it on a Sunday morning for the first time. So listen now to what the Spirit is saying to her church this day through the words of Ecclesiastes the third chapter. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, A time to throw away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to sew. A time to keep silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As I studied this text in recent weeks, I came across a story that is too good not to share and too appropriate for this weekend. It is a story about Episcopal priest Peter von Muhlenberg, who preached on this text, not on New Year's Day, It was at his church in Woodstock, Virginia on January 21st, 1776. George Washington had sent out a circular letter to Protestant churches asking pastors to help recruit soldiers for the army. 
Muhlenberg preached this very text that day saying, there is an appointed time for everything and there is a time for every event under heaven. His sermon was passionate and it stirred the hearts of the people in his congregation that day, especially by the time he concluded with these words. In the language of Holy Writ, there is a time for all things. There is a time for war and a time for peace. There is a time to pray and a time to fight. And now is the time to fight. And then he dramatically opened his clerical robe to reveal the uniform of a colonel in the Continental Army and led 300 men from his church and the surrounding churches to enroll in the 8th Virginia Regiment of the Continental Army. He became known as the Fighting Parson of the American Revolution, and today his statue stands in the National Statuary Hall in the U.S. Capitol. I don't have much more to say about that story, but I thought it was worth sharing on the July 4th weekend. And for me, it is a very humbling reminder of the power of the pulpit and the weight of words. But I want to turn to the story of somebody else, author and public theologian Rachel Held Evans, whose book um, entitled Inspired, inspired this summer sermon series. Rachel was raised in a tradition of faith that taught that all of life's answers could be found in the Bible. She wrote and spoke openly about this in her short life. She became a leader of what is commonly referred to as the ex-evangelical movement in America, as an ex-evangelical Christian. In her book, she says, while American evangelicalism instilled a healthy love and respect for scripture, it also taught me to expect something from the Bible that the Bible never intended to deliver. Namely, an internally consistent and self-evident worldview that provides clear, universal answers to all life's questions, from whether climate change is real, to why God allows suffering in the world, to how to keep a marriage together, and how to raise obedient kids. The Bible, she was taught, served as a kind of owner's manual for life, with the letters B-I-B-L-E standing for Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. It came without flaws or contradictions and could be trusted to speak clearly and decisively on any political or social issue up for debate. Some of you may have had experiences like Rachel's in a tradition where there are cut and dry answers for everything, where the rules are black and white and the task of faith is to remain in the black and white, not muddying the world with gray areas or gray questions. Or maybe you know people who are deeply ingrained in traditions like that. Even if you don't have that experience, that desire for clear rules and clear answers, it shows up in all of our lives. What is Google if not a response to our cultural desire for instant answers and very clear instructions? I Googled how to become wise, which seemed like a good undertaking before preaching this sermon. And you know what? Much to my delight, I was met with a list of six instructions to become wise. One, rely on facts, not assumptions. Two, think first from principles. Three, read a lot. Four, take enough time to make decisions. Five, listen to others. And six, learn from your mistakes. So there you have it. Maybe we didn't need a sermon this morning. 
But what I love about Google was not just that it gave me this quick list of six things. Google will also tell you what other people are Googling about whatever subject it is that you type in. So when I Googled how to become wise, it starts telling me the most common things that people Google about wisdom. So here are the questions that come up. How do I know if I'm wise? That's the most Googled question about wisdom. At what age do you become wise? What is a wise person like? Is it true that wisdom comes with age? Can you be wise and not smart? And my favorite, how do you sound wise? Not to be confused with actually being wise. There is no telling if the people who are Googling these questions about wisdom are religious or not, but at the heart of those questions is the same impulse that was at play in Rachel's religious upbringing, that desire for black and white answers, a quick guide so that you know how to get from point A to point B. Some religious traditions, like Rachel's, have responded to that human impulse for immediate and clear answers, so they teach that that's what the scriptures are, that they are nothing more than rules waiting to be followed, clear and clean answers for all of life's questions, simple as that. It wasn't until after Rachel graduated from a a Christian college where she'd been taught the, quote, biblical perspective on every subject she took, whatever that means, that she came to understand that the Bible makes a really lousy owner's manual. It fails massively at getting to the point. The Bible isn't some magic eight ball, she wrote, that you can consult when deciding whether to take a job or break up with a guy. Nor is it a position paper elucidating God's opinion on various social, theological, and political issues. While we may wish for a clear, perspicuous text, that's not what God gave us. Instead, God gave us a cacophony of voices and perspectives, all in conversation with one another, representing the breadth and depth of the human experiences in all of its complexities and contradictions. And this, my friends, is why wisdom literature is so important, because wisdom literature in the Bible is a reminder that the Bible canonizes contradictions. Proverbs tells us, get wisdom. Though it costs all you have, get understanding. But Ecclesiastes counters with, with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Proverbs contradicts itself. Its back-to-back verses instructs, do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. And in the very next line, it says, answer a fool according to his folly or he will be wise in his own eyes. So what are we to do? And these contradictions are why I love the scripture passage from Ecclesiastes. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, and on it goes. I wouldn't be surprised if this scripture gained popularity in part because it offers the false comfort of certainty. In some ways, it sounds like the perfect answer to a question of faith that longs for a black and white answer. Why did my loved one die? Someone yearning for a clear answer could ask. 
For everything there is a season, a time to be born and a time to die. There you have it. Seems black and white, doesn't it? The scripture almost reads like an answer. It seems as if the author is trying to say something final. But wisdom is more about questions than it is about answers. More about how we walk the earth than about holding the perfect map to our destination. And I think this scripture, though it sounds like an answer, is really one big question for each of us that can set us on the path of wisdom. How often does our desire for certainty or control lead us to want to name what season we're in? Or better yet, manufacture the season we're in? We have let ourselves believe that we are capable of such a thing. It seems to me that this very impulse and illusion of control is what has frayed the seams of our civic life. You don't need me to tell you that it's been a tumultuous couple of weeks. On the tail end of a tumultuous couple of years, just in the last couple of weeks, we've had congressional hearings about January 6th, an avalanche of Supreme Court decisions that have fundamentally altered our public life, and we're left with our heads spinning. And let me say this. Some of you may be rejoicing and feeling like the decisions as of late are long overdue. And others of you, I count myself here, are deeply troubled by what's transpired in the last couple weeks. But regardless of how you feel about the last couple of weeks, I think it's our impulse for control that got us here. It's our impulse for control that's on display in everything that is permeating in our national life together. It's the illusion that we get to name the season we're in, or that we get to somehow decide how long a season should last before we move on to the next one. So regardless of any of your affiliations, I think it is these impulses that are permeating through all of our public life right now and tearing us apart. And I think the writer of Ecclesiastes knows that it's that very instinct that we must let go of if we have any hope at becoming wise. Did you notice he simply names the seasons? He doesn't summon them. He doesn't say that we get any decision-making power when it comes to the weather. God is the only one with the power to change the weather. Our task as people of faith and people of wisdom, is to ask what season we're living in. What time is it? Nothing more. It's not our job to manufacture the weather. So I wonder what would start looking differently in your life if you began asking what season you're living in now. And instead of yearning for the weather to change, you ask yourself how to walk the earth today with this season that you find yourself in. Maybe it's a season of birth for you, the birth of new relationships, the birth of a new start as you anticipate college and all the possibilities that await you there, the birth of new ideas, the birth of a new job, or maybe it's a season of death in your life. The writer knew, of course, that we'd all face literal death, but he also knew that we'd face figurative deaths as well. 
So maybe it is a season of literal death, or maybe it's a season of letting go of some relationships that need to die because they've had their season, or letting expectations die, the expectations of who you thought you'd be or the life you thought you'd be living right now. I think we could all stand to let die our impulse to control the seasons of our lives, or worse yet, the seasons of other people's lives. How would life change for you if you approached your days with wonder about what season you're in now? And ask yourself what faithful living looks like for this season. I think those are the questions that ultimately helped Rachel realize that the Bible of her upbringing had been set up to fail. Because when you start asking those questions and stop trying to control your surroundings, you have to become comfortable with contradictions. With faithfulness looking like one thing today and another thing tomorrow when the season has changed. I can't help but believe that our nation would look different too if we relinquish the illusion of control, the lure of black and white answers to every problem, and instead began asking together what season we're living in now and what it looks like to live faithfully today, knowing that that might contradict how we've lived before. I trust that there are many different opinions about what season we're in as a nation, but let me say this. Knowing what season we're in should not lead us to resignation in our public or our personal lives. We should never just sigh and say, well, that's just the way things are. And in our life together as a nation, if ever there were a time to kill, now is the time to kill incivility and replace it with civility. And if ever there were a time to sow seeds of reason, that time is now. One of my favorite teachers, Richard Rohr, says, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is control. Perhaps that's why Jesus told his disciples to read the signs of the times, not so that they could control what was happening around them, but so that they could begin walking the path of wisdom, asking how to live faithfully in the time that they were in, so that they might start asking the questions that would lead to holy curiosity. So friends, what season are you living in? What would happen if you stopped trying to control the weather and instead asked how to live faithfully today, trusting that God has made everything suitable for its time? Amen.